from Portland, Oregon. This is the Jewish Review Podcast. I'm Rockney Roll. Coming up this episode, amid what have been challenging days for Israel and Jewish communities around the world, I'm fortunate to have the chance to present a man who has been described as a true Jewish hero, and rightly so. It's Dr. Rick Hodes. Dr. Hodes is medical director in Ethiopia for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. After helping evacuate over 14,000 Ethiopian Jews to Israel in 1991, Dr. Hodes remained in Ethiopia, treating scores of patients with spinal deformities and other ailments. I had the chance to speak with Dr. Hodes a few weeks ago while he was in Portland. It's an honor to share my conversation with him. I hope that this interview can be an inspiration for you in these heavy days. My thoughts are with you and your families, along with all those affected by terrorism in Israel. Stay with us. The Jewish Review podcast is presented by the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland and its women's philanthropy, presenting Impact with television journalist Juju Chang, Thursday, November 16th at the Middleland Jewish Community Center. Join like-minded women to make a profound impact on the Jewish community locally, in Israel, and around the world. For more information or to register, visit jewishportland.org 2024 impact. Now, here's Dr. Rick Hutz. Rick Hodes, welcome to the Jewish Review Podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll start you off with the first question I ask everybody. Tell me about your Jewish journey. My Jewish journey. Wow. I was born to a Jewish family in Long Island, and uh, we were not terribly affiliated. We were uh, members of a reform congregation, and Judaism was part of our life, not the most important part of our life. But we would occasionally do Shabbat. We certainly went to Sunday school and uh, did Jewish holidays. There wasn't a lot of meaning to it to me, and I wasn't very impressed with what I saw. Later on, as an adult, I started wondering if I missed something along the way. So I actually was living in Ethiopia and would listen to the BBC. And the BBC would have a religious program every day for a few minutes. It was like a thought of the religious thought of the day. And the most important person that I would listen to and I learned from was a guy named Hugo Green, who was a Holocaust survivor, who was a, ra- a rabbi in London. And it sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there's more depth to Judaism than I appreciate. So later on, I went to Israel and studied at Aish, at a yeshiva, to learn more about Jewish culture and Jewish religion and Jewish thought and became more observant. And so now I do keep Shabbat. I do keep kashrut in the way that I keep kashrut. I aim to pray three times a day. I don't always do that. But I put on tefillin every day and you know, somehow I feel much more connected Jewishly than I did before. That's my Jewish journey. Now the other thing is I live in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And in Ethiopia people see me as a Jew. And they see me as an Israeli. I'm not an Israeli. But in their eyes, all Jews are Israelis. So I sort of represent the Jewish people to a lot of people. So that's also on my mind, because I better behave myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Ethiopia, tell me about your, your very first experiences in the country. Well, I went to Ethiopia to teach at the medical school. 
as a Fulbright professor in 1985. So I got off the plane and was attached to the medical school and assigned a ward to attend on and so on. And it was like a huge learning curve because here I was, you know, in the Johns Hopkins system in Baltimore, seeing the best of American medicine, but the cases were different, the diseases were different, the treatments are different, and I had a lot to learn, a lot to learn. Like, for example, I had not treated much tuberculosis, I had not treated rheumatic heart disease, I had not treated valvular heart disease, and this is, was so common in Ethiopia. So that was my challenge in Ethiopia for the first year was learning these diseases and figuring out how to deal with that. And also learning a new culture, learning, learning a new language. It was all challenging. Yeah. And then how did you get involved with and tell me a little about your work on Operation Solomon? So I worked in Ethiopia for two and a half years. I left. I came back in late 1990 to work with JDC. And I was the medical director. So I was in charge of the health of all the Ethiopian immigrants to Israel at the time. Um, we had about 15,000 people or so in May of 1990 when Operation Solomon came along. And I remember walking across the lobby of the Hilton Hotel and running into Uri Lubrani, the Israeli liaison to the Ethiopian government. And he called me over and he said, Rick, we just got the green light. Tomorrow's the day. Everybody's leaving. So that night we were up, late at night, putting together the last details of Operation Solomon and what to expect medically and what medicine we needed and so on. The next morning I got up and they called together a group that they called the committee. The committee was like the 20 most educated people in this population of 15,000. And they may have had some high school education. They said, go to every house, tell everybody to drop everything, come to the Israeli embassy, bring only any medical records that you might have at home or x-rays because people would take those home, and, and your own kids, like no suitcases. And the next morning, all these people started coming to the embassy. My job that day was getting people out of the hospital. So I had all of these people who had been hospitalized in various hospitals in the city, and I needed to get them out and get them <clears throat> to the Israeli embassy so that they could, they could leave and get to Israel. So you were medically in charge of, like you were the doctor in charge of these thousands of people that were... Right, so we had our medical program. The Israelis had their, you know, they were flying in, they flew, flew in 39 planes. Each plane had a staff, including, I'm, I'm sure they had doctors in every plane. But my job was getting people out of the hospital, and people knew me, and they knew our program. So that, that was my job during that. That's, uh, that's quite the caseload for a doctor. Yeah, it is. It is. And you know, for example, remember somebody had an appendicitis. question is, should we put them in the hospital here uh, in Ethiopia and get the appendix taken out, or should we put them on a plane and just get them to Israel and hope for the best? And I decided to just give them antibiotics, put them on the plane, and let the Israelis, you know, write a medical note and let the Israelis deal with this. And pregnancy as well. I mean, and it was so stressful. On a typical day, we would have one baby born. Um, 
and those days, I think we were that day. I think we had like eight women gave birth that day because of the, the whole stress of the situation. Yeah, I've, I've seen the stories of, of women who gave birth in the air. On yeah, the some some women actually did give birth on the on the airplanes. But the the appendicitis is quite the case. Just write a little note. Hey, when this guy gets here, take his appendix out, would you? I know exactly, exactly. So. Then how did you go from working on Operation Solomon to now you're treating hundreds of spinal patients, some of the worst spinal deformities on the face of the planet in Ethiopia? Yeah. So in addition to my JDC medical work with the immigrants to Israel, I started volunteering at Mother Teresa's mission, working with the Catholic nuns and anyone who walked in the door. So in 1999, I got these two abandoned orphans with TB of the spine. One was an Oromo from a place called Becho. One was an Amhara from Gojam. And I wanted to help them because they had, one of them had a 95 degree angle. The other one had like a 120 degree angle in his back and like big V's. And if they didn't, if I didn't get them surgery, they'd become paralyzed and they would die. So I ended up adopting them and adding them to my health insurance in America and getting them surgery, knowing that, you know, if you adopt an abandoned orphan, they become yours for life. So on one hand, I could save their life. On the other hand, we'd have to spend the rest of our lives together, which is what we're doing. And so they were my first two spine patients. Another spine patient came along, and I adopted him and added him to my health insurance and got him surgery in America. But then, you know, serial adoption is probably not the answer to spine deformity, then I met the best spine surgeon in the world, whose name is Ohena Babuachiaje, and we started working together. And now I'm, you know, I've been sending, we've done like 1,500 cases together where I've sent patients to him, or he and his team come to Ethiopia, and they operate in Ethiopia as well. So I started the spine program in 2006. 2006, we got 20 new spine patients, and we did 11 surgeries. Now I'm getting between 500 and 1,000 new spines every year. And these are terribly, terribly deformed young people. And we're trying to put them into ambulatory traction, unwind their spine, stretch them, and operate, put in spinal rods and screws and so on, and get them surgery that way. So you, you mentioned those that you've legally adopted. I think you've now legally adopted five children in Ethiopia. That's correct, yeah. That's unusual even within the realm of doctors who treat endemic diseases in impoverished countries. What led you to making that decision each of those times, and what has that been like for you after their treatments have concluded? As you mentioned, you're, you're now kind of permanently welded to each other. Yeah. Um, it's been an adventure. You know, not always easy, not smooth necessarily. And you're dealing with different personalities and people who may have been psychologically traumatized, people who've really suffered, you know, people who are orphans who've really suffered along the way and then have a significant medical problem as well. So there's lots of things that can go wrong. And, uh, you know, it's not so easy. But for the most part, they're doing, they're doing quite well. And uh, to see them succeed is like the greatest feeling in the world. Like, my oldest son just graduated from pharmacy school. So knowing this kid would have died, he suffered along the way, and we all suffered with him. But he, he got through, and so that's just amazing. Yeah. 
with all the work you do and all the patients you see, how do you avoid burnout? So that's a very good and important question. I try to pace myself. You know, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And I try to duck out from time to time. This year, I've been more successful in just saying, okay, next week, I'm out of here. And like I have a intense paperwork thing I need to do to choose the next round for surgery or something. And I'll fly to India and get a nice hotel room, which is not expensive in uh, Mumbai or New Delhi or wherever, and go through my records and do my work that way. And it's quite pleasant to do that without being in Ethiopia and having a million people calling me. And you know, I need, I need the, the solitude to do that well. But that's what I'm trying to do now is to reclaim some of my life. Because I'm, I'm 70 years old and I keep, you know, I'm still working very full time. So trying to at least. I think very full time would be an understatement considering what you've told me so far about the work you do. Yeah. So I've read a number of sources that uh, Shabbat dinner is quite the affair in your home. Uh, walk me through a, a typical Friday night at your house. Who's there? What's happening? So we have those of us who live in the house. And who, who lives in the house right um, now, let's say. So, I, I mean, I have a three-year-old. I have a five-year-old. They are my relatives from my Ethiopian family. Um, and then I have some long-term patients who I consider part of my family and some relatives of my kids who are living with us I'm because I'm literally the rich uncle. <laughs> so I'm paying some school fees for, for the cousins. And then there's any visitors who happen to be in town. People call me all the time, can I come for Shabbos? Non-Jewish people call me, can I come for Shabbos? And I, you know, everybody's welcome if, if we can work it out. Even one time I got a call, Chelsea Clinton's mother-in-law was in town, and she called and asked if she could come for Shabbos. I said, yeah, sure. So then we, uh, the way we do it, and I have to explain that the way we do it is not necessarily the proper, quote, Jewish way to do it. So like if you go to another house, they may not do it this way. But the way we do it is we stand in a circle, we hold hands, and then we start by singing, If I Had a Hammer. There's a Haggadah called the Family Participation Haggadah. And one of the things that they suggest is singing that song. So we, one year for Passover, we followed that Haggadah, and we did that at home. And it was so successful, we decided we're just going to keep on doing that. So we sing, If I Had a Hammer, you know, I'd hammer out... I'd sing out danger, I'd sing out justice, I'd sing out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. So we we sing that, and then we sing Shalom Aleichem, and then people, if there's people that we don't know, we go around the circle, we introduce ourselves, we say who we are, what we're doing in Ethiopia, and then we'll do, so we don't have kosher wine, um, so we do Kiddush over bread, and I toss the bread, like manna from heaven, which is the Sephardic custom. And then we eat. And we have this soup that my cook makes. And we have, it's a vegetarian house. So it's a vegetarian, it's actually vegan. Because Friday is the day, Wednesday and Friday, Ethiopians don't eat meat. And they're, they're vegans on Wednesday and Friday. So the house is always, um, is always vegetarian. And it's often vegan. So... We have vegan Fridays every Friday night. Nice. And I hope you can join us as well. I would love to if I'm ever in town, which I hope to be at some point. 
I suspect you've been asked plenty of times how your faith, your Judaism, has influenced your medical practice. I want to turn the question around the other way. How has your work in medicine influenced your outlook on Judaism and your personal faith? That's an interesting question. Wow. Being a doctor is who I am. Being a Jew is who I am. So my challenge as a human being is to combine those two. Because they're both like 24-hour <laughs> assignments. Like the way in my life, you know, in Ethiopia, I'm like a doctor all the time and a Jew all the time. And people see me that way. Um, I remember I was going to Gondor, and I went to the nuns, and I said to the nuns in Addis Ababa, I'm going to be in Gondor tomorrow. Do you want me to bring anything to the nuns in Gondor? And they said, yeah, here's some money for them, and here's their mail. So I went, and I delivered them, and they, the nun looked at me. She said, oh, it's you. And I said, they didn't tell you Dr. Rick was coming? They said, no, they didn't say, they didn't tell me your name. They just said the Jewish doctor is coming. So the nuns, they're not quite sure of my name, but they call me the Jewish doctor. And I'm cognizant of that. So those, those two parts of your identity are intrinsically enmeshed. For sure. For sure. Our listeners can't see it, but uh, you are wearing an impeccably patterned blue and sea green blazer that apparently has quite a story about it behind it. Can, can you tell me about your jacket? Yeah, this is actually Australian Aboriginal material. And I was in Australia a year ago and picked up a bunch of material. So two of my Ethiopian sons are the same size as me. And between us, we have about 40 blazers. I have a tailor in Bangkok who's very creative and puts together, like in this case, the material comes in squares. So they had to sew together the squares and then make a jacket out of it. And they're, they're like magicians. They're so good at it. And so I get my material from either Ghana in West Africa, where we have a hospital that we work with, or anywhere else that has interesting material. And then they turn it into a... Um, a jacket in Bangkok. So the, it ends up getting a lot of frequent flyer miles. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other noteworthy pieces in, in that collection? Oh, I have a lot of African material. Mm -hmm. So some, some of it on the subtle side, some of it quite loud. Because in West Africa, they love these loud colors. And if you walk around West Africa, they just love, or even just being at the airport in Africa, you see the West Africans wearing these very wonderful, colorful things. Fabulous. So as a parting question, what is the biggest thing that listeners to this podcast, American Jews and Americans in general, should know about what's going on in Ethiopia from your perspective? So Ethiopia is 120 million people. It is the second most populous country in Africa after Nigeria. It's large. It's complex. There are multiple ethnic groups. There are multiple challenges there's a dam, um, which Ethiopians support and which the rest of the world may not. Um, there are <clears throat> political issues going on in the country for sure. But the Ethiopian people are wonderful people. And they're caring. They're compassionate. They're very good to kids. 
And I think that there's a great opportunity to do good work. And what we're doing is we're able to take, like before I came to Ethiopia, nobody, nobody was looking at spines at all. Now we've done over 1,500 spine surgeries. We've transformed the lives of these suffering kids. And now because of that, we want to build a spine center. We want to keep on going and train Ethiopians so that this can continue indefinitely. That's my challenge for me to keep on going and to promote this. And I would encourage your listeners to go to my website, rickhodes.org, to read about our work, to contribute to our work. Come visit us if you like. We'd be happy to have you. Come for Shabbat. And um, thank you so much for the chance to tell my story. Dr. Rick Hodes, thank you for joining us on the Jewish Review Podcast. It's really been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode of the Jewish Review Podcast. A heartfelt thank you to Dr. Rick Hodes, Shauna Dolinka, and Michael Geller at the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee for helping this episode come together. You can learn more about JDC's humanitarian work in over 70 countries at jdc.org and more about Dr. Hodes' work in Ethiopia at rickhodes.org. Links are in the episode description. If you like this episode, please leave a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice to help others find our show and click subscribe to get our latest episode every two weeks. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please reach out by email to editor at jewishportland.org. The Jewish Review Podcast is a production of the Jewish Federation of Greater Portland. Special thanks to Daniel Berger. Our theme music is by Isaac Joel. I'm Rockney Roll. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, all the best. Thank you.